lot of property managers that are out there forget what it's like to be an investor. They often will feel like the property manager almost has a blank check to go do with the property, whatever they feel like. And they don't really act as their fiduciary. As a loyal Best Ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Mark Dolfini. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. And hello to all the best ever listeners out there. Well, they say hello back and looking forward to our conversation, Mark. A little bit about Mark. He is a real estate investor and a former U.S. Marine. Thank you, sir, for your service, first and foremost. My honor. Thank you. And Mark is currently oversees the ownership, operation, and management of $40 million worth of real estate. He volunteers for various veteran causes, and he's based in Lafayette, Indiana. So with that being said, Mark, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah. My background after I got out of the Marine Corps, which was seems hard to believe it was over 20 years ago, but I got out of the Marine Corps, went to Purdue University, got a degree in accounting, worked in that field for a while, but I had always had a bent on something more entrepreneurial. While I was in school, I started buying real estate. And by the time I graduated, I had about a dozen rental units. And at that point, that's where my education really started because I proceeded to make every mistake a person can make <laughs> in real estate. So yeah. worked that through and managed that for a while and built to a fairly sizable portfolio. And mistakes just kept on coming. But eventually, I learned an awful lot from them and was able to get to a point where that wasn't running. I introduced you as you oversee the ownership operation management of $40 million worth of real estate is that your property or are you doing third-party management or what's the deal with that? Yeah, it's a mix. So I had accumulated at one point about $6 million worth of real estate that I owned in my name. And then I started doing third-party management. I got my broker's license and they were required to have a broker's license to do that. So I was getting approached by a lot of outside investors because they saw how I was managing their properties and thought that I was doing a pretty good, decent job. And they were having a lot of heartburn trying to manage their stuff. So they reached out to me and wanted me to manage it for them, but I had to get legal, of course, get my licensing and all that stuff. But uh, I started doing third-party management and learning how to run that as a business. So now it's a mix between what I own and what I manage. Got it. And of the $40 million, what amount is what you own versus what you manage? Well, that's a good question. So right now, it kind of goes back to a story. So right now, I have about $2 million worth of real estate personally. Just I'm in kind of selling mode right now. I'm in cash accumulation just because of people wanting to pay a lot more money for things that I think they're worth. So yeah. I'm just going to take advantage of it and put cash away. <laughs> yeah. so, people who are a motivated buyer, and in my opinion, that's just never a good mix. 
lots of motivated buyers out there right now. But by the time I got to the pinnacle where I was at, I had about $6 million worth of real estate. And that was until 2008 came along. So that changed things significantly for me. <laughs> Fair enough, as it did a lot of people. Looking back on it, how are you structuring your portfolio differently now than you did prior to 2008 whenever you got hit pretty hard? Well, I think it might be easier to go back to kind of the beginning to understand um, Please, yeah. the why behind that. So back when I had 93 rental units, I was self-employed. And that's important distinction between being a business owner. So when I decided that I really needed to be more of a business rather than some guy who was just really busy running around being at the beck call of his residence all the time, that's when it really started to change for me. But unfortunately, it came too little to me because I had, I thought, enough cash sitting in the bank. I thought I had a three or four months of reserves. I was doing good. And then the labor market fell apart. And not only was I financially underwater, but I was time weary. And I was working 20-hour days back to back to back with no end in sight. So the problem was I did not have a business that was scalable, and it was all based on my labor. And I didn't do a good job of firing myself from the low-end tasks so I could focus on the higher-end tasks. So from that perspective, I was at $6 million worth of real estate, and my revenues went from $60,000 a month to about $30,000 a month, and that was just that I couldn't weather. So in not much time at all, I lost about $4.5 million in real estate pretty quickly and realized that my problems were just much larger than just being financially weary. I was time weary. I was time bankrupt. I didn't have enough hours in the day to get things done. And I didn't have enough at that point in time and the foresight to replace myself as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So the way I'm structuring things now is really about managing the highest and best use of my time. And I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs, especially real estate entrepreneurs, go wrong is because they think that they're just going to end up doing it themselves and all they end up doing is creating a job for themselves. Amen. I love the managing highest and best use of your time. I approach my stuff the same way. What is the highest and best use of your time? So what dug me out of that hole was I can fix anything. That was one thing that I was really good at. Now, it's not that best high excuse my time now, but that's what kind of got me out of my hole. But what it was not doing was showing apartments, cleaning apartments, things like that, that were $10 an hour jobs, $12 an hour jobs, that somebody had turned to me one time and said, you know, Mark, you need to fire yourself from those jobs because you realize when you're doing those jobs, that's what you're paying yourself. And at the time, my billing rate was... 35 or $40 an hour. I don't remember exactly, but when I was doing those $12 an hour jobs, it was actually costing the opportunity cost somewhere between $28 to $30 an hour while I was doing those jobs. So once I got my head on that paradigm, then I realized, oh, the math is really, really easy. So from that perspective, that's what helped me dig out of my hole, which at that point I was able to start turning roughly $500 to $1,000 a day in free cash flow which really got me back to solid footing. Now, it was unsustainable because it was a year's worth of solid work in 12-hour days, but it's really helped get me out of the hole. I didn't declare bankruptcy, which I do pride myself on that, but it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And that's where I realized, okay, we're sitting and returning emails six out of the eight hours of my day is not the highest and best use of my time. Right. So any job that I can replace that with someone who can do that job cheaper to a point, you're going to have to do some of that work, but to a point, 
then I try to focus myself and remove myself as a bottleneck as quick as possible. So currently my, the highest and best use of my time right now is coaching and inspiring others and helping to educate others, avoiding the mistakes that I had made and being time-weary. The $2 million in real estate you have right now, what type of properties are they? They're all residential. Most of them are single-family dwellings. Okay. And where are they located? Central Indiana. So many of them are in Lafayette, but we have them around Indianapolis market as well. How do you determine which ones to sell off to those motivated buyers, as you mentioned, versus keep? Well, I don't have an exact metric on that. I mean, now for the ones that I'm looking at, part of it is also there's a tax consideration there as well. Just what makes the most sense to keep and transition to a different ownership, sell it on contract, that sort of thing to help defer the capital gains. But realistically, it's just simple. What can I get a cash on cash return for? So if the cash that's going to be sitting in my account right now, um, am I going to get to a point where I, right now I'm hoarding cash because I feel that there's going to be a lot of deals that are going to be coming down the pipeline, not now, but in the future. And I want to be sitting heavy on cash because the cash on cash returns that I see right now that people are just paying for just flat don't make sense to me. So when I see the opportunity cost that I have for getting the cash sitting, and I don't mind it sitting idle for a little bit, but I wish I could answer that question a little bit better. I don't have an exact metric. I just see if someone's willing to pay something more than what I think the property is worth, I'm willing to let them pay it. Mm-hmm. Would there be an, I guess, evolution in your buying process whenever the downward cycle hits? For example, would you go more apartment buildings or would you stick to what you have experience in and primarily in the single family homes? I always recommend with people to go with what you know. And I like the single family dwelling market. I hear the multifamily people screaming at me saying, no, the returns aren't there and, and it's that. But the thing that I like about single family dwellings is that at least in my town, there's hardly ever an issue of vacancy. A lot of times you have three or four people lined up to see the property before the property is even vacant. So from that perspective, when you're dealing with multifamily, that's a different bird. And a lot of times I see a lot of people wanting to get into multifamilies and they vastly underestimate the vacancy expense. My perspective, the vacancy expense does exist with a single family dwelling, but if you manage that properly, you can get easily 11 and a half to 12 and a half months of rent from a property and the cash flow running well. And it's 12 and a half months, you're thinking, well, how do you get a half a month extra cash flow? That's just from good management because sometimes people will move out early and you still have possession of the property, but they still paid through the end of the month. So if you can get that prepossession and then go ahead and get it re-rented, there's nothing wrong with that. So it really just depends on what it is that you're good at. I Personally, I'm a single family dwelling guy. I've always been that. The one thing I do like about the single family dwellings is that they're much, much easier to find buyers for if you have to, mm-hmm. because not only could you reach out to investors to buy the property, but people who want to buy the home to live in. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have a 16 unit, yeah, the returns potentially are there, but it could take two years to find a buyer for something like that, even in a good market. How has your experience as an investor influenced how you approach property management? It makes me realize that a lot of property managers that are out there forget what it's like to be an investor. They often will feel like the property manager almost has a blank check to go do with the property, whatever they feel like. And they don't really act as their fiduciary. So from my perspective, I'm always looking at when money needs to be spent, are we doing a good job of keeping the owner of the property in the loop on things? So from that, from that side of things, I think 
but there's a lot of property managers out there that just don't do a good job of that. And I think from that perspective, that's why I built the infrastructure of my business to do the best job that we can to make sure that we as a property manager are keeping our owners in the run things. And I think we do a good job of that. How does that bring itself to life? Can you perhaps give a story or an example? Yeah, just as one of the things that we've done, and I wrote about this in my book, The Time Wealthy Investor, one of the things that we do, just as an example, we recognize pretty early that most of the investors that do come to us, they are investing out of state because they can buy a property almost outright here in Indiana where they would almost have to certainly leverage a property if they lived in, say, California or West or East Coast or something along those lines. But if they're investing here, they can almost buy a property outright. So almost by default, they're living out of state and sometimes three and time zones away. So one of the things that we do is we started doing a video inspection at every change of possession. So, for example, whenever a resident would move in, we're changing possession from us to them. We do a video inspection of the property, usually with a resident in tow. They're usually there for that. And it really gives an overall view of how the property was given to the resident. And it captures a lot of things. It doesn't capture everything, but it captures a lot of things. It also helps set a a base standard with the resident that, hey, this is the property. We're taking this very seriously, and we're letting you know that we've got documentation of how the property is being given to you. And then, of course, when they change possession again, when they are moving out of the property, we do a video inspection of the property then. And why that's important is because, again, documentation, they may say, oh, no, this was damaged when I moved in or, or so forth and so on. But the real critical thing is that the owner sees that video and they see it saying, okay, well, yeah, we're going to have to replace carpet. We're going to have to do this or this is just worn out. So when they see the follow-up video for the next move-in, they're actually going to see the work that's been done. They're going to see that new refrigerator sitting in the kitchen. They're going to see that new vinyl that was replaced in the bathroom and not just rely on the word of the property manager that actually got done. Because we're finding out there's a lot of that that goes on where the transparency, the transactions, and the transparency of actions of what's going on in their property just doesn't exist a lot of times. So we did that, and that really enables owners that live on the other side of the planet that might live in Singapore. They might be Americans that are living in different countries working abroad or not. They might be foreign investors. They're actually getting to see what they're actually paying for. And I think that's a big deal. I think that transparency is something that we brought to the arena that flat didn't exist in the industry. Oh, yeah. I definitely could see how that would be beneficial for many different reasons for the resident as well as the owner and your company. Is there anything with that video that you've done that you've evolved? Perhaps you weren't videoing a certain aspect of the property before, but after coming up with some discrepancy with the resident who's moving out, now you video that part of the property or anything that you've evolved with that process? Yeah, and the main thing that we've figured out is that it really gives an opportunity for the whole transaction, and it wasn't really intended this way, but the whole transaction is kept at arm's length, both from the resident to the owner and us to the owner and us to the resident. It really keeps it at arm's length because there's a lot of times owners might want to charge a resident for something, and we have to say, look, the carpet really wasn't in great shape when they moved in. I mean, let's be fair. It's not about always being in the resident for something because they may have moved in and the carpet wasn't brand new, but it was okay, right? But if they lived there for three years, 
going to be normal wear and tear. And there's a lot of owners that would otherwise say, well, there's nothing wrong with the carpet. The carpet should be perfectly fine for them to move in. You know, they should pay for it. Eh, not necessarily. There has to be some accountability that runs in both directions. Mm-hmm. So I really felt that it, that was a, an unintended consequence, but it really was nice that it really provided that buffer and protection for both the owner and the resident. So it's really nice that that evolved in that way. It certainly wasn't intended when it started. That's interesting. An additional benefit for the resident and just the overall process. In terms of taking the video itself, does the video that you took the first time, is that the same type of structure as what you take today? Or has that format or what you video changed at all? We've always been really intentional with it. Like anything, we'd have to go back to the person doing the video and say, hey, slow down, you're going too fast. I know one thing, there's a hilarious YouTube video out there about no vertical videos, which is hysterical. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's absolutely priceless. Um, (laughs) But uh, don't do vertical videos. You want to make sure the camera's held in the proper orientation. Make sure you're going slow if you're going to do videos like that. Again, I wrote about this in the book, was... This isn't a reality TV show. Don't walk through and be surprised, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Like, this is a <laughs> clinical video, you know I mean? No. <laughs> Don't make it look like real TV. You want to walk through the property first. You want to know what you're walking into, <laughs> which we've never done that. We've always been intentional. Start outside at the street so you can get the whole property. You want to do the outside of the property first. Make sure you get the address. Ideally, you, you might catch the residents being seen in the video, but keep their kids out of it because that's just creepy. Don't do that. But as you're walking through the video, probably the best evolution I would say is that we had to slow down. Mm-hmm. And when you're there and you just want to get the thing done, it's going to end up being a 12 to 15 minute video if it's a 1500 square foot house. I mean, it's just there's lots of nooks and crannies. You want to open all the drawers. You want to make sure everything's out and, and check everything. So that's been probably the biggest evolution. But the biggest problem that you can have they're getting these videos how to archive them so you know where to find them eventually because you have to find it eight months later and the when you have to record for this stuff and then you're like oh well okay now i got to go find this video that's buried somewhere either on someone's phone or wherever so you just you do need to be intentional with it from the very beginning is there a voiceover or is no voice you want to do a narrative you want to talk through it let's just say for argument that you're going to move in and you open the oven and it hasn't been cleaned. Don't try to be like, oh, yeah, oven's fine. Just own it. Just say, oh, it looks like we missed the oven. We're going to go ahead and make sure that gets taken care of. Walk through it. It's a narrative. You're going to miss stuff. There's just too many balls in the air. Maybe your, your cleaner was just off that day, right? Or just missed it. It happens. But own the mistake because then it's just going to make you look really disingenuous if you ever have to show that video and, and especially if you're showing that to an owner and they're paying for the place to be clean and it obviously something significant got missed. Let's use that example. The oven's filthy and you say, oh, it looks like the cleaner missed this. We'll have to get to it. Do you then take another video or pictures of the clean oven so that you show that you actually did that so the resident can't later say, well, you never cleaned the oven even though perhaps you did? Well, what we will do at that point, we'll create a work order and a supplemental work order and we'll send the cleaner back over to do that. And then the cleaner would come, this is where it gets into another part of our system, would come back, give us back the work order. And the, at that point in time, our resident resources person would reach back out to the resident and say, hey, did that get cleaned to your satisfaction? And we do everything on recorded lines. So 
they're usually as an issue with that, but that's how we follow up with that. We don't do another video because again, we want to make it right, even though doing another video just isn't something that we just feel is, is necessary. We've addressed it, we've got a work order in on it, and that's how we do it. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? In terms of real estate, the best advice I've ever gotten and I would love to pass along is to learn to value your free time. Fire yourself as quick as you possibly can from the jobs that you're doing. You're going to have to do some of the jobs in the beginning. You're, you're going to do all the jobs in the beginning. And it's important for you to do those jobs because as much as you're able to do, I mean, some people are just not, or they just should not do accounting or they should not do the other stuff. But whatever it is, if you're going to do the work yourself, learn to value your free time and fire yourself as quick as possible. And once I did that, it really opened up the world for me and it really opened up my business as well. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am ready for the best ever lightning All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Looking to build a predictable and duplicatable real estate investing business? Do over 100 flips a year. Whether it's flipping or wholesaling, experience a difference with the ultimate real estate investing course now and also get a free strategy session with Dylan. He's been a guest on the podcast before. You can use the code JOE20 for 20% off. Everything you need to know in one course, go to www.theultimaterealestateinvestingcourse.com. Okay, best ever book you've read? Best ever book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Best ever deal you've done? The best ever deal that I've done would actually be a collaboration with another property manager. I thought about an abundance mentality and I got hooked up with a property manager that was similar to what we did but not the same, and I ended up renting an office within their own office, and even though that property manager never so much gave me a dollar, that mentoring relationship and that partnership paid me over and over and over, and they did well with that too. So I extended my network into people that were more like me than less like me. Oh, wow. So it wasn't a transaction. It was, I guess, perhaps in an indirect way, it was a transaction because you rented an office with someone who you learn from? Did I capture that correctly? Yeah. So if I can, I know it's lightning round. So yeah, please elaborate a little bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really important because I learned in my networking that you're going to get more referrals from people that are more like you than are less like you. So I ended up having this relationship. We would share referrals back and forth between people that were looking for places. But since, since I was a single family dwelling guy and they were more multifamily, we would often be able to share, like if the house that the person was living in was just getting too expensive for them, I could send them over a guy who was, whose rates were significantly less. An apartment would have worked out of them or vice versa. If they were somebody who was looking for more space, they could go into a house. So that was a relationship that really worked out. And I eventually rented a single office for them when I was trying to start establishing more robust infrastructure for my business to the point where I ended up growing out of that office you know, within a couple of years, but we're only about a hundred yards from each other in terms of actual distance now. But it's been a relationship that I that has just paid over and over and over. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? On an actual transaction, oh Lord, I've paid too much for properties. That's probably the biggest thing is I paid too much and did not consider 
the value of my time of having to maintain the property. Best ever way you like to give back? Junior Achievement. I just did a Junior AA for a day, and I love it, and I really recommend people do that. Junior Achievement is fantastic. We don't know about it, look into it. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? Through Facebook at Landlord Coach. That's probably the best way, but you can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Mark Dolfini, Landlord Coach, or at LandlordCoach.com. Awesome. And we also have a unique URL, LandlordCoach.com forward slash best ever to get, looks like, a pre-release version of your new book. So congrats on that. And Mark, thank you so much for being on the show, talking about some unique ways that you differentiate your property management company. One is from a macro level, remembering what it's like to be an investor and then having the communication process with your investor clients be very transparent. And one of the ways that comes to life is through the video inspection that you do and some tips for anyone on that. One, no vertical videos. Two, go slow. Three, start on the outside of the street. Work your way up. Make sure you get the address. And you mentioned in passing, you were opening up all drawers. So clearly it's a very detailed video and have some narration going on along the way. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Take care. And good luck to your best ever listeners. Looking to build a predictable and duplicatable real estate investing business? Do over 100 flips a year. Whether it's flipping or wholesaling, experience a difference with the ultimate real estate investing course now and also get a free strategy session with Dylan. He's been a guest on the podcast before. You can use the code JOE20 for 20% off. Everything you need to know in one course, go to www.theultimaterealestateinvestingcourse.com.